Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice American Network. We have a full show again today. I just want to remind you that today is the last show of the 13-week pilot season that we started uh, way back in March. The season has been very successful with informative guests and panelists. I'm thrilled, though, that the show, uh, with the show, and we are gaining more and more audience with each week. So starting next week uh, is season two. Good Morning New York will move to Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m., not Monday, but Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. live, 6 a.m. Pacific with regular repeats throughout the week as usual. So remember, next week, July 1st, look for us on Tuesday morning. From then on, season two is going to be great. On today's show, I have my regular panel of real estate agents, uh, Niall Lundgren, president of his own firm, Dalian Realty, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman. Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, and Perul Brambat from Core Group Marketing. We're going to be talking today about several topics. The first is the return of the classic condos and co-ops in Manhattan. This is a story that's very interesting to me because through the years, uh, well, probably since 2005, 6, 7, the glut of new high-rise fancy glass condo towers has sort of shadowed the the real classic pre-war old buildings in New York that I'm uh, that I love dearly. Next, we're going to talk about Central Park. We're also going to talk about Midtown East and its attributes, why people decide to or choose to live uh, in Midtown, close to work, close to train stations, Grand Central, etc. We're going to talk about the inventory in Manhattan. Uh, The inventory has actually reached a six-year low, and we've talked about this several times uh, throughout uh, these past shows, but it's getting even more serious. We're going to talk about a million-dollar studio that just traded. Isn't that something? Who on earth would spend a million dollars on a studio? Some people outside of this town would even wonder who would spend a million dollars on any apartment or house uh, in this great nation of ours. We've touched a little bit about bidding wars through the past couple of weeks, but we want to go back and revisit how do you actually win a bidding war because there are strategies that you can deploy to put yourself ahead of the rest. The toughest negotiation um, that my panel has gone through in their individual uh, businesses, I'm going to ask them how they faced that and how they got through it. And also, how do agents uh, persevere through tough times and stay motivated? This is a very uh, can be a very demotivating business because we are always out there trying to find more business, and sometimes uh, there's a lag between. So motivation. Uh, for us is key, and I'm going to ask our panelists to tell me how they get through it, and I'll share some uh, personal um, uh, points from my side. So let's talk about classic condos. Co-ops make a comeback in Manhattan. In prime locations across Manhattan, once fashionable apartment houses are beginning to reclaim their real estate prominence. I love this. Buyers who have recently flocked to the modern Starkitect Towers are rediscovering the buildings with provenance. Two key real estate trends are happening here. As prices of new condos rise, old-style co-ops have seen their per-share and per-square-foot values languish, prompting boards to change unfriendly policies, focus on financial management, and upgrade properties to compete in the luxury market. So, guys, good morning and welcome back to the show. My panel morning. Good, good morning. morning. 
All right. So what do you think of this trend with co-ops? I mean, not that they have fallen out of grace through the years, but they certainly haven't been as fashionable as uh, the new Starkitect design glass towers. Where did they go and why are they seemingly coming back? I, I think that co-ops are always going to play a major factor in New York residential real estate because, you know, they dominate the market share, you know, roughly 70, 75% compared to 25, 30% of the market being condos. So I think, you know, they're always going to be there. Um, but I think, you know, you can get in with co-ops at a lower price per square foot versus some of these architect towers. So, I mean, that, that, that alone is, is why these co-ops are going to always remain attractive, I think. I agree with Niall. In addition, over the years, I've taken clients to many of these Stark buildings, and it's very interesting. It's really by neighborhood. People who want something that feels homier, that feels like they're embracing them, even if they have to go through a co-op board, if they want to be on the Upper East, Upper West Side, sometimes Midtown, they are leaning more towards co-ops, which I never would have predicted. All right, so let me ask you this, you know, following what you just said, Deborah, because I um, I would agree with that, but you know, can the co-op apartment really make a strong comeback? And the reason I ask that question is because you just mentioned it—the the, the co-op board, you know, the infamous co-op board, the feared co-op board in most cases. You know, when you're buying in the architect or just in an older uh, condo building, there is a board application or a purchase application, but it's not like a co-op. You know, a co-op can and oftentimes do turn you down. So my question is really. Knowing how difficult co-op boards can be in this New York City, can this co-op apartment actually really make a strong comeback? You know, I think with with what's happening with the co-ops and, you know, they're being a little bit more lax with some of their policies, that's really important for the comebacks, right? Because if you're looking at architects and condos, in those, in those situations, those condos, it's easy to transact. You know, you're talking fee simple, you purchase, there's no real board approval where you have to, you know, worry if you're going to get turned down or not. I had a deal where there was a dog who was above the weight limit. And because my buyer came in at a high price per square foot, that would generally uh, I guess not generally, just it would increase the overall value of, of everyone on the boards, um, their, their apartments. They were more lax, and they actually changed the, uh, the board r- rules or regulations to allow for a dog that was 10 pounds higher than the actual um, suggested or limit that was there. That's so I great. Think, That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I was stunned. I, you know, we, we really tried to, to, to get it done. Um, at, you know, we, we had a very high offer, which is, I think, what, what made us attractive and allowed the building to do that because everyone in the building, you know, thinking about, it, okay, yeah, it's a very, you know, the well, well-trained dog. And, you know, the, the dog was, was like literally the best that it could be. It was, it goes to training on a daily basis, but it, it added so much overall value to the entire building. Um, it was, it was shocking for me that it even went down, but, but it didn't. And that just goes to, goes to say that, you know, these calls have to remain um, a little bit competitive, and, and that's a prime example of how they're doing. And I think in, in addition to, uh, sorry, go ahead. It's okay. I was go just going to say, I think there are certain co-ops within our industry that are known to be stricter than others, and so for our clients, we tend to stray away from those co-ops. Um, for the most part, if their debt to income ratio works and they have great liquidity, 
and they're not super high profile, it's, you know, there shouldn't be any issues as far as approval, but there's certainly some co-ops out there that are known to be super tough where they ask for escrow. Um, so it's important to know which buildings out there are like that. Um, and in addition to what both of them Rachel, are saying, just, I was Rachel, just going just to add that. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Rachel, I just want to ask for clarification for the listening audience. Debt-to-income ratio, can you explain that quickly? Absolutely. So that is basically your monthly um, debt divided by your income. And typically in New York City, the boards require under 30% and in tougher boards, sometimes under 25%. And the banks typically use a higher ratio. And what makes the co-ops in New York City so, I would say, special is a euphemism, is because you really need a low DTI to get approved. And if you don't need that, you will be rejected, most most likely. Perfect. Perul, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, no worries. I was just going to say also I think that uh, boards are increasing, sort of increasingly coming under fire, even the more uh, the, the more selective ones um, about their selection process. I mean, there have been, you know, court cases and newspaper articles uh, that I think really, I mean, I think boards are, I, I mean, not all boards are the same, but, but I think a lot of boards are increasingly becoming a lot smarter, savvier, and recognizing that, that, you know, they really have to have some legitimate reasons as to why they're going to turn somebody down, um, because they really can come under fire and, and have to face, uh, legal challenges, um, many times. So I think that, that the, the sort of trend of the way co-op boards approach um, anybody who is looking to purchase in the building, um, I think that there's there's definitely a little more of a of, of the thought that gets put into it, other than just I don't like the color of your eyes or whatever it is that could have been that could have elicited a board turn down 15 years ago. So is it safe to say that you know over the last I don't know six seven eight years you know it, it, you know buyers trended away from the co-op because they were crazy, things were out of control, the uh, requirements were very, you know, stern, and these new, glassy, ritzy, you know, fabulous-looking buildings just tended to make it very easy. You know, you put your 10% down, you got your financing or all cash, you got a closing date, you closed, you moved in, all is said and done. I'm finding now also, you know, touching on what Niall said before and, and also, Rachel, you know, the flexibility or the, the more flexible that these co-ops tend to be getting uh, is probably making buyers feel a little better about going through that process. But, you know, I still go back and think, well, they still can turn you down. Yes, they still have requirements and they will always have requirements. So I'm wondering, you know, how quickly the co-op will make that comeback. Um, mm-hmm. What about pre-war and post-war condos? Now, of course, the, 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 the post-war is the, is the new glass towers. The older, more pre-war uh, buildings that converted to condos in the past, when you're out with buyers, do they have a specific desire or, or, or you know, do they choose one over the other or is it just the word condo makes them happy? I really they, believe that yeah. it depends. Uh, there are buyers who... As soon as you, in general, I think that when you start taking buyers out to look at apartments, uh, very quickly I find that that I would say eighty percent probably have a very clear, clean preference of you know I really like the glass, modern feel, 
And then there are the buyers who just love the charm of pre-war buildings. Um, and then, of course, there's the third building that is probably the least favorite for all of us, which are like the 50s buildings that are sort of lower ceilings or the 80s as well. Um, it's What's fascinating about New York real estate is truly each decade you can completely see when a building is built. Um, and some of the buildings that are lesser attractive also tend to have are cheaper in prices. And as a result, if there are buyers who are just genuinely in need of larger space to have smaller budgets, uh, then those buildings really do accommodate that buyer. But I think generally there seems to be a very clear-cut um, preference on and it's just about personal taste. I think even though there is a clear-cut preference, because I do see the same thing, and I agree with you, Parole, I think, you know, you have to show if somebody likes the, the glass buildings or the, the completely, you know, more, uh, modern uh, condos that are out there, you know, it's important to also show some of the pre-war costs just, just to get a feel and be and feel like, you're educated. So I, I always do that. I'll toss in one or two as we're out on a Sunday, you know, walking around seeing um, apartments just to, just for them to get a good feel because some people, you know, they, that start out looking at only the pre-war charm, they end up falling in love with, you know, the modern buildings or vice versa. So it, it's always an education process, especially if somebody's, you know, coming to New York City um, from out of town. I agree. I think when I take buyers out for the first time, you know, and they don't specify exactly what they want other than room count and price point, I will always mix in post-war, pre-war, glass tower, you know, co-op, condo, because in the beginning, they may not always know exactly what they're looking for. Uh, and certainly when they see something they like, it may be completely different than they thought, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, yep. I'm actually happy to see yeah. uh, the pre-war co-op and pre-war condo sort of uh, be making a comeback because I happen to be a pre-war bigot, but I think they're also <laughs> filled with charm. <laughs> I just I just am, guys. I mean, I tell that to everybody, and some people listen, some people don't. But anyway, we're going to take a break. We will be back after these messages, but first you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America uh, channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. 
If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Um, you know, it's not always just because of commuting. Or it's sometimes because of favorite restaurants. It's sometimes because of where you work. But people do have preference where they want to live neighborhood-wise here in New York City. Midtown East does not usually make an apartment hunter's shortlist, but prices there are lower than in many other Manhattan neighborhoods. Buyers and developers are taking a fresher look at the area, roughly defined as from Fifth Avenue to the East River, between 40th Street and 59th Street. Until recently, the neighborhood's biggest draw was its enviable commute to the office. Now the perception is changing. Why do you think that is, guys? It's more than just the commute. What was that? Price per square foot. When you look at the the city overall, there are deals to be had in that area. Um, That and Kipps Bay is another one, which is kind of close to Midtown East, but that's where I'm finding a lot of my buyers who are priced out. Uh, are are sort of looking in the Midtown East area or even Kipps Bay right now. So why then is the price per square foot in the Midtown East uh, neighborhood lower than in, in many other neighborhoods in Manhattan? Is there a particular reason? I think people perceive it as very businesslike. I think they perceive it as having office buildings and very few homes. But that's by people who have never been there. If you go to Midtown East, especially almost as far east as you can get. It's all residential. It's quiet. Quiet. It's kind of a, yeah, it's a hidden secret of the city. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of tucked away over there, especially, you know, around the Grand Central area, the UN area. It's a, it's a neighborhood that uh, is a little less building uh, or work building centric, but a lot of restaurants on 2nd Avenue there because of uh, the UN. I mean, international restaurants of every uh, sort and you know it's a very quiet neighborhood as well. But you know, recently developers have broken ground on several luxury projects. So this is interesting because including fifty United Nations Plaza. Now, so these are the architect buildings yet again, and in a neighborhood that's been dormant, for lack of a better word, for a long time. Why would people decide to spend whatever the price per square foot is going to be in these new buildings, this one in particular, again, to live in Midtown East? What is that draw? Or is it just a brand new building, uh, glitzy, easy commute, etc.? Why would they be spending that kind of money? Dog runs, Grand Central, and and quiet. Those are the top three on my list. I don't know if you guys agree, but mm-hmm. I would say I those agree. are the top three. Yeah. Yeah, commute to the SDR is right there, and then there's also shopping. You know, right if you want to just walk um, a little further west down, you know, Madison and Fifth Avenue, Bloomingdale's, etc. I mean, that's that's prime time right there. How many how many how many times when you start out with a new buyer, you know, do they say to you, "I'm seeking out Midtown East." I'm I'm trying to remember for myself in my own business, and I haven't had uh, anyone looking in that neighborhood in probably mm, maybe three to four years. Generally, it's the people who want to uh, live closer to work. It has been generally my buyer who wants to look in that area. Um, But, but I I mean, I'm not personally in my own business. I'm not seeing the largest demand for that location. But whenever that does come up, it tends to be because of, of distance from office. Or I've had one or two people over the years, including recently, whose work colleagues and friends 
told them that was the place to be if you're on a budget, which I thought was interesting. Again, it's price per square foot. Now, is it, are we talking uh, rental, Deborah, or are we talking sales? Oh, no, I'm talking co-op. co-ops. I'm actually co-op. talking co-ops. Okay. Yeah. I lived in Midtown East. I used to work on 44th Street and lived on 46th Street for a while, way back whenever, and it was very convenient to walk to work, and I've never had that luxury again. Uh, but, you know, I did have um, a concern with being, you know, living so close to work, I felt like I never really left work. So on the one hand, there is the convenience of walking to work and being able to literally stumble out of bed and be in the office in 20 minutes. But then you think, even in your off hours, you're still close to the office. And I just felt like I was um, never leaving the office. So the neighborhood seems to be trending back from, you know, a business-centric district to residential, and it seems to be, you know, again, based on price per square foot, dog runs, Grand Central Terminal, uh, lots of different things. But how do you think it's going to stack up against some of the more popular neighborhoods going forward? You know, there's always a buzz when something new happens in an area that's been, you know, sort of dormant for a while. How's it going to ultimately stack up down the road? Any thoughts? Well, I think there's um, rezoning that's going to happen, right? There, um, especially with that one Vanderbilt, S.O. Green um, is going to be building. So I think they're, they're, they're planning to put, what, 500 million into Grand Central. So I think that's going to play a factor. Then they're going to rezone, you know, Midtown East. Um, so, uh, you know, I think with all that, you know, put together, the value down the line is there. And you always have to look at down the line value. If you can get it in a lower price per square foot in Midtown East now, and, you know, understanding that the subways are going to be better uh, transportation and there's going to be a, a you know, a redevelop, a rezoning where there's going to be more development, you know, it's, uh, it's good value add play. Do you think it's more I would of agree a new, with that. Mm-hmm. do you think it's more of a new frontier or is it just a, a refresh and a new look and a gentrification of an older, you know, at one point very established neighborhood? You know, Midtown East is one of the most older, um, established neighborhoods in the city. So I, I don't know if the word frontier is correct. I think maybe it's just a look uh, at an old neighborhood and just a fresh update to it. I mean, you know, again, I haven't, I haven't really toured around in a while uh, with anybody in Midtown East, but I'd be interested to hear going forward uh, what you guys see or hear in that neighborhood. What, what would be a second to Midtown East? So, you know, is it the 30s? What's the next refresh or the next new frontier? What are you seeing? I think the 30s are, are, I mean, we, in fact, we're having a conversation about this. And uh, Sean Osher, um, our CEO, actually said at a meeting, he said, you know, I really think that the 30s are going to become the new Bowery, uh, quote unquote, um, in the sense that there's just so much new development happening. And along with that much more sort of residential uh, insurgents, if you will, in that area, um, if that then is going to trend up uh, restaurants and other things, sort of like what you saw in West Chelsea. Um, you know, 10th Avenue used to be no man's land, and now there's just like some of the best restaurants running up and down um, due to the high line, et cetera. So I think that um, I really see that neighborhood as becoming really, really interesting very quickly. I agree. Guys, Central Park advocates are battling skyscrapers over shadows that are casting on the great lawns and, and all of the uh, beautiful trees and, and open spaces in the park. A couple of new skyscrapers have already cast these huge uh, shadows, one from 157, of course. You know, why is this all of a sudden becoming uh, uh, an issue uh, in the park? I mean, we've had tall buildings for years, but now they're getting taller. 
and people are saying when they're laying on the on the on the lawn or or sitting and reading a book, whatever, they don't want to see building shadows. It's almost like they're interfering with the privacy of that book. Why is this becoming such a controversy all of a sudden? Is it really about the park or is it really about development in New York? I think it's about development. I really do because when you speak with any of these people one-on-one, as soon as you get off the topic of the shadows that are being cast over Central Park, then they start going into the developers and the new construction and New York isn't what it used to be. And But this is New York. It actually is a living, breathing organism. We're always changing. So that's what I think it is. I completely agree with that. I think there's always going to be controversy over any sort of development. You know, there's always landmarks and there's always going to be the preservationists that are going to want, you know, every area. And especially if they've lived, you know, in the Central Park South or Central Park West area, you know, for a number of years, 20, 30 plus years, you know, and they see a shadow, you know, that, that that's going to cause alarm to them. But, you know, for, for folks that are relatively new to the city, you know, it's it, it's a shadow and you can move. It's not always the biggest of, of a deal, and the fact is is that there's demand for housing you know, that needs to be fulfilled in New York City, and the developers are meeting that. Listen, I have a, a thing about move. shadows. I have a shadow problem, too. This, this morning, the lighting is, sh- is casting a shadow on my script, and I can't even see it. But anyway, that's it. <laughs> and the hot studio lights. It's really hot in here. But let's, let's go back to development. So really, I agree with all of you. Development is getting so out of control. Even our parks are suffering. So my question to you all is, how much more development do we need? I mean, do we really need 90-story towers? Why do we need that? What is this about? I don't think it's well, a matter I mean, it's of need. Easy. I think it's a matter of want. Okay. Why do we want it? I don't know if we want it. I think the buyers want it, especially we have such a focus on international buyers, and there's all kinds of things going on in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. that as long as the international buyers are still coming or people from the rest of the country who have this disposable income to buy a home here, they're still coming, and I think it will continue until they stop, which may be never. Well, so and, one of the most, and one of the most prized um, uh, things about New York real estate is views. And so, I mean, there's definitely, a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, on one hand, we really don't want our parks to suffer. It's our parks that make the city that much more enjoyable, at least for me. I try to get out to Central Park every chance that I can get. Uh, especially this time of year. Yet on the, on the other hand, there's such a demand for uh, homes that have a view of Central Park. And just historically, I mean, of Central Park view, uh, it, it appreciates by 116% more than any other view in the city. I mean, that is just a huge statistic to, to understand as to why that view is so valuable, even from an investment perspective, as, as well as an aesthetic perspective. Um, and so I think the demand is definitely on the one. I would absolutely agree with that. You know, I think also development is uh, we want development or we need development because obviously of the lack of inventory in this town. <clears throat> so it's a lot of a little it's a lot of a lot of things. But I think it needs to be just a little more controlled and certainly with heights. And I think I remember on the Upper West Side many years ago, I'm trying to remember seven, eight years ago when two tall buildings went up for the first time and the community freaked out and the yeah. zoning and the rules changed up there and you can no longer build 
you know, higher than however many stories. I don't remember the, uh, anymore. But yeah, Morningside Heights, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah, it was a huge to-do. So, I, you know, I'm yeah. an advocate, I guess, of keeping things, you know, with a height restriction, Hell's Kitchen, Greenwich Village. I mean, you, you know, listen, we live in the city. We love the city. We love our parks. But uh, if you can't get natural light through in the parks or throughout the streets, then what's the point? So I, think I, mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I don't know if you've been to Hong Kong, but... I mean, really, it's like from the street, you cannot see the sun. And, um, you know, I think that our zoning laws in New York are in place uh, to ensure that, that there is a certain amount of uh, light that hits, uh, hits the street and that that is preserved. So I do think that ultimately, um, you know, making sure and ensuring that there is an overbuilding is a very important issue for the city, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, listen, I'm a broker as well, and I'm out with customers all the time, so I understand the need for more inventory. But like I said, you know, I think natural light, listen, just like our customers when we're taking them out and they walk into dark apartments or their requirement is they want a light apartment. Not necessarily about views, but they would prefer a lot more natural light. So I I live in the city. I've been here for, for many, many years. And, you know, it's important for me when I'm walking outside to have the feeling of some nice light. I don't need to run away or out of the city to get that. So I, I completely understand both sides of the issue. And I wonder, you know, it's going to be interesting to see going forward how developers, how the community boards, and how um, just residents of our wonderful city here, you know, handle this issue. But, you know, it's not, it's not any different in Riverside Park. Um, so all of these things are, are very important. But anyway, we're going to take another break. Uh, we'll be back after these messages. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back. Before we get back to our topics in Manhattan, I just wanted to point out some... um, uh, Hamptons news. Home sales are actually soaring in the Hamptons. And now buyers who want more for their money are splurging on its traditionally less fancy neighborhood, the North Fork, according to new market reports. While the number of home sales jumped 38% on the South Fork, the skyrock- they skyrocketed 60% on the North Fork. Completely different areas out there east, but both equally beautiful. 
the East End is experiencing an incredibly active market, which we haven't seen anything like this since 2006. That, according to Pam Liebman from Corcoran. And it's interesting because we're going to do uh, a whole show on the Hamptons coming up in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, we, we all are very familiar with that uh, East End neighborhood here on Long Island, uh, a playground for the rich and famous, for those of us who aren't rich and famous but still love the beach and love everything out there, Hamptons. And it's interesting. It's actually encouraging to see after many years of, you know, slow movement and slow growth that uh, they are coming back. So look out for a good show on that coming up soon. With that said, inventory in Manhattan uh, reaches a six-year low. StreetEasy uh, released a report last week and found that total inventory for available homes is at its lowest point in nearly six years with only 10,000 available units uh, during the first quarter of 2014. Now, one would say 10,000 units. Wow, that's an awful lot of apartments to sell. But you and I all know here in our business in Manhattan, that is really not a lot of apartments. And again, this ranges from studios up to, you know, four, five, six bedroom luxury homes. The neighborhoods that saw the sharpest inventory decrease over the last year were the Upper West Side, the Lower East Side, and downtown Manhattan. The median sales price hit $900,000 for the first quarter at 16.9% jump from the same period last year. The average sale price for Manhattan homes was $1.76 million, up 34% from last year. I personally predict that inventory will be up a little bit, but it won't be significant. What do you guys think about that? Well, one of the most important things to note is our absorption rate. Um, in the last six months, or, in, or at least in the year of 2014, our absorption rate went has gone down by 50%. I mean, it is incredible to realize that the average turn on a sale used to be 180 days in Manhattan, and that has gone down to 90. Um, so that just tells us sort of how quickly any product that is, you know, is a nice piece of property um, that buyers are willing to come out and drill them to pay for, for the apartment that really is a nice apartment. I also think that buyers are getting savvier and savvier and aren't necessarily just paying crazy amounts of money for everything out there. So that is why I think we can account for, you know, the amount of inventory that quote unquote seems to be around, but you know, that's also not the inventory that may be necessarily selling quickly. So let, let's take I, that and let's take that and say, so for example, on the upper West side, the lower East side, downtown Manhattan, why why let's 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 use the Upper West Side for a minute. Why why would inventory up there? I mean, I have my theories, but why do you think that Upper West Side would be suffering uh, the most in a decreased inventory? Well, the Upper West Side is a lot smaller than we really think it is. The uh, space between Central Park West and Riverside Drive is a lot narrower than a lot of the other neighborhoods. Plus because of historical landmarking and things like that, a lot of the buildings are shorter. So to begin with, there's less inventory. Plus there's a higher rental inventory in a lot of the smaller brownstone buildings. Uh, correct. Would you also say, though, because this, this seems to be, you know, what I'm experiencing with my customer set on the Upper West Side, you know, people do want to sell. You know, the traditional one-bedroom one, fa- one bedroom needs to go to two-bedroom, two-bedroom needs to go to three-bedroom, and, you know, uh, weddings, uh, divorces, births, deaths, you know, all of, the, all of the, the typical real estate reasons. But the person selling says, so if I put my one or two or three-bedroom on the marketplace, I probably will sell it quickly because my real estate agent tells me that this is a burning hot market here in New York City, but where am I going to go? 
because there isn't uh-huh. a lot of inventory. I don't know what I'm going to be able to buy next. I personally see that on the Upper West Side uh, as a problem or the reason for a lack of um, real good inventory. Does that make sense to any of you guys? Are you seeing the same thing? Yes, I've actually been told that by many potential sellers that they're afraid, even if they're going out of the city or any place else in the city, that they don't know where they're going to go. There's nothing that they've looked at that is uh, where they really want to move. And with the rents being so high, it's not about if I sell, then where do I buy? It's where do I buy or where do I rent? Recently, mm-hmm. I, I actually had a neighbor approach me to purchase the next-door apartment. I approached my client who had owned the apartment, and I said, I'll get you whatever you want. It's the neighbor buying your apartment. They want to combine. I mean, that's like once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for somebody. And she said, it doesn't matter. Where do I go? Where am I going to go? Yeah, and, you know, the downtown neighborhood, which everybody is always uh, telling me they want to be in or live in or whatever, that, you know, listen, I can almost understand the housing stock down there is a little different, a lot different than the traditional Upper West Side, traditional mm-hmm. Upper East Side, smaller units, so not necessarily that many families, although through the years, you know, people have been combining, Rachel, as you just said, uh, apartments. You know, it's interesting that the downtown market, and I think the reason for that place being slow is because with inventory is because there everybody just everybody everybody wants to be there. So whenever something comes up on the marketplace, I I just lost five bidding wars on one bedrooms in the West Village, and we finally settled on the the sixth one, and we got it, but lost five times. So that wow. I think speaks for itself. And mm-hmm. buyers, you know, are trying to stay brave and 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 stick it out. But Lower East Side, what's happening over there? I would assume that there's a lot of new developments, certainly a lot of new uh, glass condominium buildings going up. Why is that suffering from an inventory perspective? What did you say, Vince? Why is that? Lower East Side. Why why is the inventory suffering on the Lower East Side? I think there's just a lot of spillover just from a different neighborhood. And the Lower East Side in general, I think, is just, is, is, there's going to be the, uh, the Seward Park redevelopment that's going on. And then, yeah. um, you know, the East Village spills down, you know, into the, uh, into the Lower East Side. And then, you know, Soho coming in through Nolita, that whole area um, over by, you know, Orchard is really starting to, to have a serious uptick, even down near Canal Street. So, you know, I think with all of where, you know, as we were talking about being a frontier on the Midtown East, I think down the Lower East Side is, is, is a frontier. And people are uh, really excited about the opportunity to purchase down there because they see the value of, uh, of the neighborhood and, and how rapidly it's, it's changing. There's a lot of restaurants and boutique-y, um, you know, type coffee shops that are in the area that I think are really helping drive um, a lot of the, the movement and sales down there. Let's talk I think about Niall the is right. Go ahead. What was that? Oh, I was going to say that I think Niall is right, that a lot of people think of, oh, the Lower East Side, that's where I had my first apartment. That's where I lived when I was young and poor and everything. But now, as these people are getting a little older, they're re-looking at the Lower East Side and saying, huh, maybe I want to be there in some of these new developments, which I find very interesting. I agree, and I and I agree with uh, with Niall was saying. But let's let's move over to the million dollar studio. Recently, a studio condo at the Harrison on West Seventy Sixth Street on the Upper West Side was listed for nearly one point one million dollars, making it a first, even in Manhattan, for million dollar studio. Is this the beginning of a new era in Manhattan real estate in in New York City real estate? And based on 
the buyers you meet with, do you think there is demand in New York City for a million-dollar studio? <laughs> well, I think it's all becoming price per square foot. And, you know, as the prices per square foot go up um, in general, um, studios have not um, appreciated as much, um, you know, I would say side-by-side side of, let's say, like two-bedroom apartments in terms of price per square foot. But eventually, as real estate gets more expensive, uh, studio buyers and sellers expect that the price per square foot on the studios are going to rise as well. You know, years ago, um, I'm trying to remember the year, but years maybe 2000, I can't remember, I bought a one-bedroom condo at the Century on Central Park West, and I paid $550,000. And I think my family, my parents were ready to commit me. <laughs> They thought that I was out of my mind to spend a half a million dollars on a one-bedroom apartment on Central Park West. Of course, no frame of reference. They didn't understand what CPW was you know, versus you know, 76th Street or wherever else. And I kept saying, listen, this is what the, price is. This is what the prices are. This is a, a special building. This is this. This is that. But I have to tell you something. I was able to convince them maybe that I wasn't out of my mind and I didn't need to be committed, but – I have to tell you, when I hear things like a million dollars for a studio, I sit back and take pause. I just can't understand that. What neighborhoods do you see million-dollar studios popping up in? I know the Upper West Side well, and even though this one is listed on the Upper West Side, I really, in my gut, don't think it's at the start of a trend. I see it more downtown. Okay. I think in places like, like like Soho, for example, you know, I sold mm-hmm. um, a, a penthouse, just an open, literally a raw open loft space. I mean, it was definitely a studio. It was four, you know, it was like 1,200 square feet. Um, but, you know, that could be considered a studio. There was no walls, so it was just an open raw space. And I think Soho is where you get a lot of that. And if you want to consider studios, you know, as, as these open uh, loft space, then, you know, I think Soho is definitely going to be an area where you could see that. I would probably agree with that, but I think, you know, the more traditional, like the Harrison on 76th Street, I mean, I I don't even know the square footage. I should have looked that up before we came on the air, but, you know, probably four fifty five hundred square feet the most. And so, wow, you want to talk about That's what it is. It's 500 something. I know that apartment. 532. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought it was. So, you know, you're talking a lot of money for that. And quite frankly, you know, the Harrison's a great building and 76th Street is okay. But, you know, here we go. That's all I can say. Anyway, we need to take a break. We'll be back after these messages. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the uh, Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away, guys. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. 
are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back. So we've touched on this subject several times throughout the season, uh, the season one, and that's <clears throat> winning bi- uh, real estate bidding wars. For those of you out there outside of New York, bidding wars have been uh, in place here for a couple of years now as inventory has uh, been severely limited. Uh, too many buyers out there, uh, not enough properties for sale, prices going out of control, most properties selling for more than the asking price or the listing price. So, you know, how do you actually win a bidding war? With the low supply of properties for sale in New York City right now, brokers must be more diligent than ever in preparing their clients for a bidding war. And this is really what's key. You must be able to prepare your clients for what will and definitely pop up through this process. Knowing how to strategically present an offer and negotiate a contract is an essential tool for real estate agents to survive in this town of New York. So how often do you encounter bidding wars and do you prepare your clients ahead of time for the possibility of one? Very important question. I think on the first meeting, anytime I, I meet with a client, you know, that's, uh, that's the first thing that we talk about. Well, I mean, not the first thing, but, you know, one of, that's, that's obviously woven into the conversation. And, you know, we need to make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row and that, you know, we have a team assembled. We've got to make sure that the attorney um, is there. We need to have a pre-qualification letter with, you know, maybe one or two banks because the building, you know, the financials might not qualify for Citibank, for example, but Chase, you know, we'll do a deal there. Um, you got to have a revenue pre-qualification letter. you got to have the buyer's bio. I think we talked about that on, on one of the prior episodes as well. I think that's very important to humanize your buyers. But having all of that ready before you even go out, um, to look at, at apartments, that's the, that's the most important thing because the second you get out and you identify a property and then you're, you know, you're backtracking and you're getting your revenue financial and you're trying to get financing in line, it just feels rushed and a little bit chaotic and then all of a sudden you, you lost out and, the, and there was a deadline with the bidding and it, and it becomes a little too, little too uh, crazy. So what, what you got to do is just, you know, just remain calm and, you know, breathe, you know, that's, uh, that's big for anybody in real estate in this market is just to, like, just breathe a little bit. Uh, but be ultra-prepared, and if you do that, you know, you'll, you put yourself in the best position to win. And it doesn't always happen, but as long as you do and you're putting yourself in that position, you know, that's, that's all you can ask for. I also I couldn't agree with you more, Niall. I mean, I really think that it's just, you know, when we get all that stuff gathered to begin with, I think that there, it's almost like initiation. I think that buyers, when, when, I mean, first of all, as a broker, it makes me realize that the buyer is absolutely serious. And I think for the buyer, more importantly, it psychologically prepares them. Um, and it's like, okay, we're doing this and this is something real. It's not just like, just like, oh, it's Sunday afternoon. I'm walking around the city now looking at apartments. I just think it gives it a little more structure, a little more definition. It, it, the whole process becomes a lot more real. For the buyer, um, when we prepare them like that up front, and I think that when, as we're gathering the data and educating the buyer about how about just just helping them understand where the market really is at, and and be prepared to sort of go through these these multiple bid situations. Um, I think that the more we 
sort of manage their expectations that they may lose one or two apartments before we really land on something that's going to become a home for them. Guys, I would agree with that 100%. Mm-hmm. First of all, Niall, yeah. I love the word breathe. I probably use that once a day with either my business partner or <laughs> or you know other agents I manage or, or clients because it really comes down to that. And per, uh, Perul, well, also Niall, the same. I mean, preparedness in this particular type of marketplace is really the only way that you can get around you know, the difficulties of, you know, finding the property, understanding up front that there is going to be probably uh, a heated contest for this property. Unbelievable heated contest. Where else does this happen? And, you know, you've got to make sure that your seller, uh, well, your sellers, if you're representing sellers or your buyers, more importantly, that they understand the process. I think the only, the only way to get through this, and it can be very challenging, is to be prepared uh, and, to, and to breathe. All right, so the, the toughest negotiation you ever faced and how did you do it? One of the most valuable skills for any of us in this business is obviously negotiation ability. Key to getting any deal done, negotiation and the ability to communicate and inter- interact well with different personality types is critical for brokers. And sometimes in the world of cutthroat New York City real estate, uh, these negotiations can be tough. What was the toughest negotiation you ever faced and was there some factor that allowed you to make a major breakthrough? And I'm sure we all have many stories on these. So many stories. Where do you begin? <laughs> oh, no. Um, I, I actually think eight times out of ten, the reason why we may win a bidding war, meaning the panel and Vince, is our relationship within the community, within the brokerage community. And our relationship oh, oh. of being respected by our peers will 100%. enable the broker to say, I'd like to do a deal with you over this other broker who doesn't know how to do a board package. I don't want to talk to this person for 90 to 120 days. And Vince, you asked about a recent story. I guess six months ago I was on my honeymoon and it was like the first time in 10 years that I actually took off two weeks, but there was (laughs) one negotiation that I had to do and we, we won contract goes out. And then I get a call as I'm leaving a spa right on the ocean in Hawaii. And she says, we got a higher offer. It's 50000 above. We need your client to match it. Got my client to match it. Everyone's happy. This other buyer went up another 50000 So my client ended up going another 100000 over while the contract was out. You can imagine how emotional that was for my client. But we won. And that's because the broker was wanting to do the deal with me and said, please, I'm telling you stuff that I shouldn't tell you, but get your buyer to come up and we'll have a deal. Yeah. And so how do you keep a cool head during these negotiations? Because, you know, well, on a honeymoon or when we're on vacation, I mean, I had a similar situation this weekend when I was away in the country, um, you know, deals blowing up. It's kind of like, well, <laughs> how do you keep a cool head during these tense negotiations? What do you laughing. do? I think Niall said the best thing, breathe. <laughs> breathe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And wine. And wine. Yeah. That's it, breathe. I mean, we're professionals, right? This is what we do. You know, being mm-hmm. calm and cool in these situations is is our job, and I think you know the everyone on, on the line right now who's who's speaking you know, understands that, and that's that's how you get into these situations, and that's how you see success in this business is by breathing and just remaining well, calm because it's an emotional purchase for your buyers and your sellers. They're freaking out, you know. If they have somebody else who's freaking out as well, it's it's chaotic. You know, you gotta you gotta be grounded a little bit. Yes, and yeah. Rachel touched on something a few minutes ago. Um, by saying a lot depends on your broker's reputation in the industry. 
because I actually was representing a seller a Absolutely. few months ago in a bidding war. We had four offers. Two were identical, really identical. They, they could have been twins. And honestly, one of the brokers I had dealt with before and really didn't want to deal with. And I explained to my seller, these are your choices. You're the owner. It's your decision. Uh, but I think this other broker will be better for you because he will be easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. I agree with that 100%. And, and, and our re- relationships and our responsibilities to the broker community is, is far you know, greater than anything else. And I tell that to my agents on a daily basis. It is always down to our reputation, always. All right, so mm-hmm. how do you persevere during tough times and stay motivated? What keeps you motivated on a daily basis? When the going gets rough, yes, I agree with the word breathe. <laughs> I may not take it so well sometimes on my own, but I can certainly dish it out and, and hopefully people listen. But really, you know, in, in, in spite of it all, how do you keep yourself motivated? This is a very big self-motivating business, and we need to do that on a regular basis. How do you control the stress, guys? I meditate, honestly. I mean, I, I think that too. you have to have your – yeah, you have to have your outlets. And for me, I think meditation is one, just going to a yoga class or just going for a run. And ultimately, I think it's this simple. You just can't take it that seriously. It's like – I feel like you have to have a center, like a center of gravity, if you will, uh, in an emotional context. Um, You just have to know that this is a cyclical business. There are going to be times that you're really busy and so crazy that you don't, you know, you don't know what time of day it is. And you realize your last meal was about seven hours ago. Um, And then there are going to be other times when you're like, oh, my God, I don't know where my next deal is going to come from. And I just think that. If you, I think it's about your personal volatility. If you're somebody who can just sort of, I, I think if you're going to be, if, you, if you're going to do well in this business, you just simply have to have that ability to recognize that it's going to come around, go around, and it's okay, it's all okay, you know? And I think that it's when you work from that place that that you have a peace of mind for yourself, but also I think you. it's almost like, I mean, I hate to sort of sound like, so floofy, but I think it's kind of a law of attraction thing. You know, it's like you, if you're calm and you're not sort of, you know, waffling all over the place, I think that things just sort of work and show up because you, you relate to things and deal with them from a very calm, smart place versus a place of, of desperation. I would agree, and I think we each mm-hmm. uh, are different, and we are all individual, and it sometimes comes down to what you know helps us self-motivate, but I think that in order for us to be successful and to keep our eye on the ball and to stay focused, because we can get unfocused in a heartbeat in just a conversation sometimes, that we've got to find these ways internally to make um, you know, our feel, ourselves rather feel better so that we can best present. Again, you know, it's always about putting your best foot forward, and it's always about presenting well to the outside world, whether they're sellers, whether they're buyers, and whether they're renters. So if you've lived and worked in this town as long as I have, you will remember a very storied establishment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. One name, one word, always recognized, Elaine's. Elaine Kaufman died in December of 2010, but left behind many memories for all who frequented her restaurant. She was always there and was the best owner, hostess, and was friends with every actor, writer, theater person, including the likes of Frank Sinatra and Joe DiMaggio. 
Elaine's is now called The Writing Room. The restaurant's name has been changed to The Writing Room. In the spirit of the storied eatery, the building has now renovated all of the apartments above and have placed them on the rental market. The residences will consist of 13 two- and three-bedroom apartments, where monthly rents will start at $3,600 a month. Move-ins are expected by July 1st. New Yorkers are proud of their city and of its history. Many of these, uh, many of these apartments, um, many say these apartments live on in the same way that Elaine's did for many decades to come. And so it goes. She was really a New York institution. So next week we have, um, starting July 1st, Good Morning New York, as I mentioned earlier in the program, we'll move to Tuesdays every week at the same time. We have been renewed for a year. The people behind the scenes here are excited to be able to bring you 52 more shows weekly. Our focus will remain New York real estate and the New York lifestyle with featured guests along the way. So until next time, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you each and every Tuesday morning starting at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, live on the Variety Channel here on the Voice America Network. You can always tweet me at uh, Vince Rocco or follow me on voiceamerica.com. Remember, this is your day. This is your week. Make it a great one, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. 